Little Wing, Jimi Hendrix, the Jimi Hendrix Experience, 1967, Bold as Love, a true talent, a true talent. I think I first heard Hendrix on a vinyl that my father has. My father has a lot of old vinyl records, got The Doors, Jim Morrison, wasn't a big Beatles fan, but has some of Lennon's solo stuff. Cream was one of his favorites. Loved the psychedelic rock. Mm, must say something. And then he also had the Hendrix Experience, Bold as Love. Now, if you haven't seen the Hendrix album cover for the album Bold as Love, it's very colorful. Gives off very strong uh, Indian vibes. Uh, Indian, Indian style art. So it really hits you right in the face. It's a very powerful album cover. So when I saw that as a kid, popped it in and listened to Hendrix for the first time, and he is right. It is an experience. Listening to Jimi Hendrix is an experience, and it's a very pleasing experience. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to episode 33, the big three zero. I'm in a good mood today. I'm, I'm feeling good. Today is Friday, July 19th, 2019. I have so much I want to get to. This is all a culmination of things that have that have transformed themselves after me not being able to get to them for days. I'm going to try and get through everything today on this one episode. We'll see. Hopefully. It's a Friday. We're looking forward to the weekend. We're going to be hit here, I mentioned before, with a real scorcher, and we're feeling it right now. We're looking at 95 degrees out right now in New York City. We're getting even higher tomorrow, and it's such humid air, it's very, very difficult to breathe. And I actually am going to be outside tomorrow attending a party. So I'm going to do my best. I know I said before I was not going to be outside, but I will be outside. I'm going to do my best to stay hydrated, to stay under the shade. If I am going to be in the sun, remember everybody, you have to wear your sunblock. I'm going to be wearing a hat. You have to protect your body. This is not a joke. I'm reading an article today. The worst part of a heat wave is when it doesn't cool off at night. And this was interesting. Obviously, what they're saying makes sense, but I didn't think of it as first. at first. It's very hot during the day. It's expected to reach, in New York City, 110 degrees Fahrenheit, Fahrenheit, Fahrenheit heat index on Saturday. 110. I can't remember the last time it was 110 in New York City. It's not only dangerous to be exposed to the sun during the day, but what happens when it doesn't cool down at night is you're looking at a very increased chance of heat stroke. Heat stroke occurs when the body temperature rises above 104 degrees. Usually when that happens, it leads to organ failure. So if the heat doesn't diminish at night and your body cannot cool off, you have a higher chance of getting heat stroke. Now, this often affects people that are spending time in the sun, but especially people that work all day um, in the sun, laborers and farmers, it affects them the worst. It's a good thing this is happening on the weekend. Hopefully, people are not going to be working during these times. But as I was reading this article, I read an article about former Giants lineman Mitch Petrus, dead at 32. And what did he die of? An apparent heat stroke. Mitch Petrus, 32 years old, was working in his farm in Arkansas and dropped to the ground and passed away from heat stroke. He was part of the Giants 2012 Super Bowl team. So obviously, I'm a Cowboy fan, but I was rooting for the Giants back then. They are still from New York, and you want to give New York respect. But here's a young man, healthy, former athlete, 
or I guess or you're always an athlete, athlete, young guy, 32, working in a field at his family shop, <laughs> heat stroke. That's, that's a scary thought. If it can happen to this guy, it can happen to anybody. So be very careful in the sun. It is not a joke. Just like very extreme cold, you have to be careful of the extremes. Hot or cold. Doesn't matter which one it is. Be careful of the extremes. So I'm going to do my best tomorrow to stay out of the sun. But just a PSA warning to everybody in the Northeast. I Pretty much this is affecting everywhere. Everybody where there's a heat advisory. And if you look at the little map, the Northeast is this dark, dark red. Which is an excessive heat watch. Middle of the country is an excessive heat warning. And then on some of the outskirts, middle of the country is a heat advisory. So it looks like the Northeast is getting clobbered. Not looking forward to it. Not at all. You know, it's a very exciting time today in American history, but not only American history, but human history in general. Today marks 50 years of the Apollo 11 mission, 1969, where we sent the first manned mission to the moon. We sent Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, the famous one small step for man, one larger step for mankind, or one larger leap for mankind. And this was 50 years ago today. Now, I was doing a little bit of research because I think space travel is, is fascinating. And I was looking at how far away the moon actually is because you sort of know the moon's pretty far, although you can see it from a telescope. And you can see it with your naked eye, which means it's definitely not as far as some of the other planets in our solar system. The moon is 239,000 miles away. Now, Apollo 11 took 76 hours to travel there. A, that's incredible. If you think it takes 12 hours to get to Australia and they travel to the moon in 76, I'm sorry, it takes basically 24 hours to get to Australia because it's a seven hour, a 12 hour flight to maybe Abu Dhabi and the 12 hour flight. So probably 24 hours and they travel 239,000 miles in 76 hours, but it's really difficult and almost impossible to actually conceptualize. 238,000, miles. So to put that in perspective, that's about 30 Earth-sized planets between us and the moon. You can fit in between that space. 30 Earths. So it's pretty far away. And they accomplished this in 1969. Now, this got me thinking about Mars. There's been a lot of talk in the next decade. We are going to be sending the first manned mission to Mars. Now, how far is Mars. Mars is obviously not as close as the moon is to Earth. But when I read this number, I was blown away. Mars at its closest point, because it depends on where the Earth and, the, and, the, and Mars are within the orbit of the sun at that point. They can be closer or farther. At its closest point, Mars is 34,600,000 miles away from Earth. That's just an impossible number to fathom. You can't even conceptualize how far away that is. At its farthest point, at its farthest point, it's 250 million miles away from Earth. I don't even know really how to, how to even imagine a human traveling that far. But they think they can do it. Now, how long would it take to get there? Right? How long would it take to get to Mars? Well, they're thinking on average it would take about 162 days, which is was about six months, something around six months to travel to Mars. 
And logistically, that's the most challenging part is actually sustaining human life not only on the trip there, but then you have to land on Mars, logistically getting them off Mars, and then have enough sustenance to get them home. And Mars also has very thick radiation. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of logistical things that go on. But just thinking about you know traveling millions of miles away, and and that actually being close to possible, just shows you how far we've come as a species in exploring the vast galaxies or the vast space that surrounds us. And that, to me, is one of the most fascinating mysteries about living. <laughs> in general is is knowing that there is such an infinite world out there that we know almost nothing about the question is though we haven't been back to the moon since the 70s and you'd wonder well why well it comes down to a few things but the main thing is about priorities right going to the moon is expensive trump is really pushing for a moon landing in 2024 which is going to cost between 20 to 30 billion dollars and you have to think with all the problems going on right now in the world to just openly fund a mission to the moon, which would really serve no other purpose than another scientific discovery and, and maybe another milestone for mankind in general. It's not really it's not like we're mining minerals from the moon to create economic growth. So logistically, it's possible, but priority wise and just the cost of it. It hasn't really been broached again. But 50 years, these men traveled hundreds of thousands of miles. You know, I'm not going to pretend to understand how astrophysics work and aerodynamics and, and the complex cycle that goes into developing craft that can actually survive in space. But when I went to D.C. a couple a couple of weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, a couple of months ago, we actually saw the spacecraft that Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong landed in. So, of course, when they left the moon, they landed in a capsule, and that capsule looks like it looks like a cone. And that cone on the on the wide end of the cone has a heat shield because when you enter orbit, it's very very hot, and you have to make sure you're protecting the passengers inside, passengers protecting the astronauts inside from Earth's orbit because you're traveling very very quickly and you're generating a lot of heat. And then when you get lowered towards the Earth, they disperse parachutes and they land in the water. I believe it was called the Columbia, and they have the Columbia there at the Air and Space Museum, and you see this contraption, and it is so small, it is so tiny. The claustrophobia I would have felt sitting in that thing, flying at, I don't know how, thousands of miles per hour, hundreds of miles per hour, back to Earth's orbit is incredible. And this was done in the 1960s. Imagine where we can go from here. And that's really what I found the most fascinating is, you know, we're jumping from a couple hundred thousand miles to now we're talking about exploration that is millions of miles away. Once we land on Mars, what a game changer. I mean, that, oh. How cool would that be? I, I really hope I'm alive for them to land on Mars. We have the rover curiosity right now, but you know, there's so much more potential, you know, to have a human conquer another planet. Not conquer another planet, but land on another planet to me is just really fascinating. And then it got me thinking, is it possible to colonize the moon? Obviously when we first went to the moon in nineteen sixty nine, there was a lot of talk about then putting permanent settlements on the moon. Now, the moon has about one-sixth of Earth's gravity, and it also has very high radiation amounts. 
And of course, there's no food or water on the moon. So unlike colonizing land here on Earth, right, when there was the big European colonization of the Americas, Columbus famously said something to this effect, you know, you can bring with you what's on your back. And then when you get to this new place, essentially, you can live off the land. You can't do that on the moon. You have to basically bring everything with you and then have and then have shipments come in quite frequently or whatever the rate, whatever the time frame is to bring you actual supplies to sustain life. But you see from the 80s, these depictions of colonizations on the moon. And for a very long time, they thought, well, we'll put these bases underground, which would help some of the effects of radiation. But I still do think colonization on the moon is maybe 20 years away. I mean, there's got to be some type of permanent base they put on the moon where maybe we're not living there year round, but it's more or less like a like an international international space station type situation where you know people will recycle through. But then you bring up the issue of who owns the moon, right? This is going to get fascinating. Who, can a country own the moon? And there is talk that if we colonize the moon, we can start mining minerals. And in 1967, the Outer Space Treaty was signed, which really was specifying that outer space can be used for scientific research, but it's not clear about commercial use, right? And you cannot, through this treaty, claim a planet or a territory outside of Earth for yourself it is really part of it's part of the human race part of the humankind in general but once we start putting permanent settlements on the moon this area gets very murky i'm going on a crazy tangent here about the logistics of space travel and political geopolitical politics of space that's not where i wanted to get at but my point behind this was i think it's fascinating that 50 years ago we were able to accomplish something that to me seems so impossible but then we have not been back since. But there now is talks of going back. And the fact that we're discussing traveling millions of miles to another planet, to me, just shows you how far we've come. And the real reason we haven't gone back to the moon is for priority reasons. There's other type of research that was going on where another manned mission to the moon wasn't necessarily the best use of our funds. And I just thought that was fascinating. But I'm going to move off this subject because I could talk about space for, for a very long time. But what I want to do is take a step back and reflect. I want us to do a little exercise. I want you to close your eyes and I want you to picture you're in the woods. You're in the woods of Vancouver, thick woodlands, beautiful, crystal clear water. Birds are chirping. There's a light breeze through the trees and you hear a waterfall, a peaceful waterfall. But then you realize something's not right it can't be a waterfall you're in the middle of New York City you're in the middle of Manhattan you hear train tracks you hear voices on the announcement telling you that a train is arriving wait a second you're not in the woods you're in New York City during during heavy rainfall where the whole entire subway system is flooded and that's what happened this week in Queens the New York City subway system is an absolute disaster. There's a video going viral around here in New York City of a subway system on the E&M trains at Court Street, Long Island City during our recent rainfall of a barrier, a wooden barrier breaking during recent construction and completely flooding the station. 
dragging with that an old man who almost gets dragged onto an oncoming train. You have to see the video. It really is, first off, it's scary that no one's helping him while they're filming him almost getting thrown into a train. But it's scary that this is the infrastructure to the world's greatest city. And I've complained about subways before, but if you have not been on a New York City subway, it is perhaps the most miserable experience in all of New York City. There is nothing worse than taking a subway in the summer. I couldn't even imagine. Oh, my God. Imagine taking a subway during tomorrow's heat wave. Oh, forget about it. It wouldn't be possible. You probably couldn't breathe down there. If it's 110 degrees on the surface, it would be 135 degrees. You would be a chicken in the oven. You would be an absolute chicken in the oven. But then it got me looking at why is the New York City subway system so bad? There has to be a reason why. So I'm reading a couple statistics. 65% of trains in the MTA reach their destination within five minutes of their expected arrival time on weekdays. What that means is just over half of trains are on time. That's not good. That's really bad. The New York City government, which is responsible for about 10% of all Metropolitan Transportation Authority's budget, has decreased its contributions by nearly 75% since 1990. So no one's funding this. Really, the only funding the MTA gets is from tolls, <clears throat> subway you know, fares for the buses and trains, and I believe a couple of it's from like tax incentives. But here's the scariest part, guys. Here's the scariest part. The percentage of the MTA's budget that is used for debt payments, 17%, is around three times higher than it was 20 years ago. So what that means in layman's terms is that the MTA is using 17% of its budget to pay off debt. Now, what happens when you actually are using money, a profit, to pay off debt by occurring debt? So think about it this way. You're sort of paying Peter to rob Paul. So if I owe $10, right? I have to pay that $10 off. I then go in there and borrow $10 to pay off his $10 debt. But now I've incurred another $10 debt. And you get into this vicious cycle where you're actually borrowing money to pay off previous debt. And that's what the MTA is doing right now. They're hemorrhaging money. And there's really no end in sight. You know the oldest subway cars for the MTA right now were built in the 1960s? 1964, I believe, is the oldest subway car in the fleet. That was the, a 19, that was the year I Want to Hold Your Hand came out by the Beatles. This is happening. That's the oldest subway car. And it looks like those subway cars run on the C, J, and Z trains. So Jay-Z was riding in the oldest subway car at one point. You know what? Back in 1964, a stamp cost five cents. And a trip to the movies was $1.25. That's... That, <laughs> That's how long this has been. This is this is bad. Do you know they haven't added a new subway line since a, a new subway line, not an extension, a new subway line since the 1940, since I believe 1940. Because it's so expensive now to actually do any drilling in New York City that it's almost impossible to justify the cost of a new subway line, despite the fact that the system is so overburdened and so crowded that the current infrastructure can't support the ridership. And the infrastructure is so old, but it's so expensive to do any work that the work they do is really very, very reactive maintenance-based, where it's essentially just keeping the... It's basically shoveling deck chairs on a Titanic. That's what's happening with the MTA right now. And anyone who's been riding on the subway knows how miserable of an experience it is. But the sad part is the subway is still the number one way to get around in New York City. You cannot take the bus. 
The bus is slow. It's inefficient. It's not on time. The subway at least it gets to your destination fairly quickly ish. But this is not a good situation for the MTA at all. At all. And this was perhaps the most frustrating thing I had to read. Current Governor Andrew Cuomo's administration made the MTA spend $5 million to assist state-run ski resorts after a difficult winter. They don't have any money. They're constantly increasing the fare for the same, if not worse, service. And you're going to ask a broke organization to fund a ski resort? This is where the priorities lie in, 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 in government. This is where we are right now. And there's no end in sight. And when you and this is not the by the way, this is not the first time the New York City subway systems flood. A couple times a year there's major flooding in the New York City subway systems. And when the subway systems flood, it ruins the electrical circuits, it ruins the tracks, everything has to be redone. It ruins train cars because obviously train cars get flooded. It, it's it's a it's a nightmare, and if you think it's bad, normally try putting delays in. Delays outside the normal amount of delays you have, flooding delays. Those are your uncommon delays. When they happen, it brings everything to a screeching standstill. And when you watch this video of this subway station getting flooded, it just reminds you that while the greatest city may exist above ground. Below ground is a crumbling infrastructure that's not being properly supported, that's not being properly funded, that is hemorrhaging money based off previous debts. And it just seems like we hear a lot of excuses, but no one's doing anything to actually fix it. The average age of a subway car is like 25 years old. That's pretty old. The R train, the oldest one, is 40 years old. 40 years old is a very old train car. A lot happens in 40 years. I've been on subways in London. I've been on subways in in Washington, D.C. It doesn't have to be this way. It's just this infrastructure was built so long ago, it has never been replaced. And maybe we're we're a, a victim of our own success because we have one of the oldest subway lines in America. And we were the innovators. So we were one of the first ones to do it. So we were the guinea pigs. But you have to fix it. You have to update it. You can't just keep putting band-aids. You're putting lipstick on a pig at this point. Lipstick on a pig. It's just a bad optic. 65% of your trains. It's not good. It's not good. Oh my. Are we hitting almost 25 minutes? Okay. Whoa. Wow. We're hitting almost 25 minutes here. All right. It's Friday night. We're going to go enjoy the weekend. We're back tomorrow with episode 31. I can't believe we're on episode 31. You know, I'm, I'm feeling good. I'm feeling, I'm feeling very motivated. I'm feeling very inspired to, to do not only the podcast, but to begin working on a project. And it's a special project that I just Sprung in my mind a couple weeks ago, and I really want to get the chains moving on that. So I feel really creatively inspired. And that's what I'd hope the podcast would have done was to was to spark some type of creativity. And I think and I think it's done that. And if nothing else comes from this, I will take that away as being a success. 
on that note, everybody, we're going to end it here. Lots of love. Lots of respect.